couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the church, the gathering of believers, is the evidence of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. The church is. We should be excited every time we come together because now you can see the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you can see the kingdom of heaven right here. And so the kingdom of heaven is, is becoming so real to me, so wonderful to me, so powerful to me. That's why Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven all the time. That's why after he died and was resurrected for 40 days in Acts 1, it says he spoke to his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. It was of utter importance, and yet we don't talk enough about it. So we're going we're gonna to address uh, just the kingdom of heaven just for two more Sundays, this Sunday and next. And as we started last Sunday, we're talking about how the kingdom of heaven operates how does the kingdom of heaven operate? If there, there's certain kingdom principles that if we follow those principles and we're aware of the king and we're aware of the kingdom, these principles, if we put them into practice, are going to have huge effect. They're going to work for you. And uh, you know what? When, when Adam was in the garden, everything just worked for him. He didn't have to deal with any obstacles. If he planted something, it grew. If, if he worked on something, it worked. He didn't have to worry about things not working. Let me tell you what, in the kingdom of heaven, if you acknowledge the king, if you acknowledge the kingdom, and you follow kingdom principles, things will work for you. Things will work for you. And so if you've been asking yourself, why doesn't this work? Why didn't that work? You know what? When you start living in the kingdom of heaven and living out those kingdom principles, things are going to work for you. They're going to work for you. All right, so, um, so last week we talked about the concept of the seed. Jesus would use these parables and he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he'd give a parable. And in that parable, you would find the kingdom principles that you and I need to follow, that we need to be aware of. And they're hidden. If you just read the parable, you'd say, oh, that's a nice story. But whenever you read it about the kingdom of heaven, you realize there's, there's kingdom truths in there that we need to apply to our lives. And if we apply them, things will work. And so last week, we, uh, we studied the concept of the seed. You see, we pray, we pray, and we expect the whole tree along with all its fruit to be plopped right down in our lap. But Jesus said that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. The kingdom of heaven works with a seed. You pray and the answer comes to you in a seed form and then it grows into the full-blown answer that you're looking for. And that's what we need to be looking. We need to be looking for that seed. And so we studied that last week. This week, we're going to study a couple of other parables about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. And we're going to understand certain principles. I'm curious. You don't have to sh 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 raise your hand. But in the last four or five weeks, have you learned something about the kingdom that you didn't know? I pray that you have. We need to have that, that revelation, that understanding from heaven in order to live a victorious life. We're king's kids. We're not paupers. We're not victims. We're victors. How are you living? 
Are you living a victim to your circumstance? Are you living as a victim to what's going on in your life? You better not be. You are a king's kid. And that's a principle of the kingdom is we need to live that way. We need to believe that of ourselves because the king has taken up residence inside of our lives. That makes us a king's kid. But let's, let's look into these other principles. And the next week, what we're going to do is we're going to take the last two Sundays, both this Sunday and last Sunday, and we're going to say, okay, I understand the principle. Now what do I do with it? How do I take what I've learned and I begin to apply it in a powerful, transformational way? So here, let's look at, uh, at Matthew 13. You know, Matthew 13 has got us hung up for almost six weeks now. Can you believe that? And not even the whole chapter, just a part of the chapter. I can't imagine how long it's going to take us to get, the re- get, get through the rest of Matthew. Uh, but the Bible is that rich. My dad told me once, or, or he read to me once of a, a preacher, and he was trying to preach through the Bible, and he cried over certain parts of the Bible that he had to kind of skip over to get to the next section that he felt like God was the, the treasures of the Bible. The treasures of the Bible. Uh, John said, you know what? If we were to write a book of everything that Jesus did, he said the world couldn't contain it all. The world couldn't even contain it all. That's a power of our God. That's a power of his acts. I love the book of Acts. Man, I'm getting all, off on all kinds of tangents today. The book of Acts, what is that? The book of the acts of God, the acts of God, the visible, tangible, powerful acts of God. Well, let's get back on track here. Matthew 13, 44, uh, and following verses, the kingdom of heaven is like, all right? Here goes another one. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Can you imagine? He hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. <laughs> Can I tell you something funny? Um, I'm not going to say too much because this is being recorded. But um, I ran across this guy. All right, I'm in, at a business dinner one night. and ran across this guy. And he told me that half of his retirement is literally buried in his backyard literally buried. He's literally gone out and bought silver and found, he's got a map of his backyard. There's nobody here in town, okay? So you're not, go, don't go digging in your neighbor's yard. All right. He's got a map of his backyard and he's, he's hidden pretty deep in his backyard, large amounts of silver, large amounts of silver. All right. Can you imagine moving into that man's house? No, no, before you move in, your your realtor has taken you to his house, and you go somehow and figure out there's some treasure in his backyard, and you go and buy that guy's house so that you can have what's in his backyard. Well, this example here is literally what I just described. This man finds a field. He finds treasure in the field. He goes and sells all that he has to get that feel so he can get that treasure. Wow, what an amazing parable. We'll, we'll study that here in just a second. The kingdom of heaven is like, in verse 45, it's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. All right, when he found, the, the, found one of great value, he went away and he did it again. He sold everything he had to buy that valuable pearl. All right? Once again, 
Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like, he kept giving these examples, like a net that would be let down into a lake and caught, listen to this, all kinds of fish. You could also go as far as to say in this parable, he caught all the fish in this net, all the fish, but all kinds of net, all kinds of fish. Verse 48, when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then he sat down, collected the good fish into baskets, but threw the bad ones away. Verse 49, Jesus gets down to brass tacks and says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them, that is the wicked, into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no one who can tell me that hell doesn't exist. There's no one that can tell me that hell doesn't exist. Someone in Paradise, California, as, as the fires were sweeping into that small community, said it felt like the gates of hell opened up on us. That's what it felt like. Let me tell you what, hell is a real place, and you really don't want to go to it. You really don't want to go to it. And it's true that there's some aspects here on earth that are literally hell on earth you go through hell on earth do you know when you do you want do you want to know why you're going through hell on earth you're experiencing something that you don't want to have eternally <laughs> you're going through hell on earth so you can say i don't want that i want heaven i want heaven but here we see the kingdom of heaven is like and we find some principles buried in these parables that we need to understand first and foremost Here's a principle of the kingdom. God bought the whole world. He bought the whole world. This parable, my interpretation of it is different from others, is you know what? God saw the world and he bought the whole world because he valued you. You were the treasure. You are the treasure buried in the world. And God said, I love that. I value, I prize you so much that I'm going to give it all. I'm going to give my son, and I'm going to buy the whole world just to get to you. And I gave this example not long back of taking a dollar bill. That dollar bill, crisp and beautiful and new as it is, is worth one dollar. If you take that dollar bill and you crumple it up and you rip it and you tear it up but still to, to where it's still you know, a full dollar bill, that is still worth one dollar. Your life could have been crumpled up and torn and ripped and shredded. And God says, I still value you the same as if that had never happened to you. God values us. He treasures us so much that he bought the whole world just to get you. Just to get you. So you might ask, though, buy? It's God's already. (laughs) He created it. Why does he have to buy it back? Well, we find it, this, this concept of buying back over and over and over in the Bible. So it's a very legitimate concept. It's very, it's very real. In, in Romans 7.14, it says, I am unspiritual. This is the Apostle Paul talking. The, the Christian of Christians. He says, I'm unspiritual. What? Sold as a slave to sin. Sold. If that means if you've been sold, the only way for you to get back is to be bought back. Sin enslaves you. Did you know that? 
When you give way to do whatever you want to do and just go with the flow, it comes with a price. It comes with a price. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life, what? As a ransom for many. Ransom. What is ransom? It's when someone gets kidnapped and you pay a, a ransom to get your loved one or your friend back. Jesus paid the ransom for you because you and me, we were sold into sin. We're slaves to sin. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, um, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Did you hear that? You're not your own if you're living for God or not living for God. Did you know that? You're not your own. Either way, you don't, you don't own yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You belong either to the enemy or you belong to God. It says you're not your own. In verse 20, you have been bought. You have been bought, might I add, that emphasis. You were already bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's very clear that when we turn, when, we, when we're born, <laughs> that's where it starts. When we're born, we're born into the slavery of sin. We're born into the slavery of sin, and we need to be, listen to this word, redeemed. We need to be redeemed. In other words, purchased back. We were born into sin. You know whose fault that was, right? Adam and Eve, thank you. Thank you guys very much for what you did for me, all right? The good news is Jesus' gift is greater than the transgression, and we can live closer to God, I believe, than Adam could have ever lived. Amen? So we get double for our trouble, if you will. In certain cultures, slaves could actually buy their own freedom. Did you know that? Back in certain times, there were slaves that if they, they, if they got enough money, they could actually buy themselves out of their slavery. In some, in some cases, if they didn't have the money, they could earn their way out of slavery. This is not the case with us. This is not the case with us. God bought you and me, and listen to this, the whole world, the price has already been paid for. It's already been paid for. It just requires a little bit of faith, a little bit of receiving on our end, and we get the results of that purchase. Sin is referred to our master. Now, let me ask you, and this is a rhetorical question that you only answer for yourself. Who is your master? Who is it? And the, the Christian will say, well, God's my master. Now, I'm talking about who is your sin master? What, mas what has mastered you most of all your life? S some of us, it's addictions. Some of us, we cannot break a bad relationship to save our lives. And we just go into relationship after bad relationship. That might be your sin master. Your sin master might be lust. Your sin master might be greed. Your sin master might be the desire to be famous. Your sin, your sin master might be your own vanity and always looking and thinking about yourself. Who knows what your sin master, but Jesus paid your master and got you back. He got you back. He's paid the price, not only for you, but for whole, the whole world. And so we see throughout the New Testament, we find Jesus paid the price for our freedom from sin with his death. 
Now, to put it, this into perspective, we're going to go to a book in the Bible. How many of you know that the Old Testament is, it, there's major prophets and then there's minor prophets, all right? So if you get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, past the Kings and Chronicles, you get into these prophets and they prophesied, they foretold what God was going to do, not only in Israel, not only in Judah, but in, in, in parts of the world. And so some of the major prophets are like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations, so that's a major prophet. Then after that, you get into these smaller books of the Bible, like Obadiah, and these weird names. Obadiah, uh, Ze uh, is it Zechariah? <laughs> Ze Zephaniah, all... Habakkuk, all of these are minor prophets, and they're at the tail end of the, the Old Testament. We need to get familiar with our Bibles. We need to know this stuff, all right? It's important for us to understand these things. Well, one of those minor prophets, his name was Hosea. One of those prophets was Hosea, and he was actually a contemporary with one of the major prophets, Isaiah. And so Hosea was told to do an extraordinary thing. <laughs> He was told to do an extraordinary, I would add, awful thing. But God told him to do it. And if you'd look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, uh, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, listen to this, this blows my mind. I hope, I'm glad, God isn't going to ask me to do this because I'm already married. And I'm not getting married after this time, so it's not going to happen to me. Here it goes. Go marry a promiscuous woman. And have children with her. <laughs> How would you as a man or as a woman. Either way this is terrible. Terrible to have to do. Go marry someone who has already proven to be promiscuous. And go build a family with that person. Let's read on. Why did he want to do this? For, an um, for like an adulterous wife. This land. The land of Israel. And even Judah is guilty of unfaithfulness to God. Have you ever wondered how God feels when you just do whatever you feel like doing? Have you ever wondered what? The Bible says that God is a jealous God. And I've felt, to be honest with you, I've felt jealousy of my, for my wife at times. It's a bad feeling whenever you feel jealous. I mean, something comes up in you and you would do things that you would never do otherwise because you're jealous God is a jealous God when we thumb our nose at him and do whatever we feel like doing. He rises up, and it's as if we were committing adultery against God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? So he says, this land is full of unfaithfulness to God. Go, and this is, okay, it's bad enough to go marry a promiscuous woman, but to marry a woman with this name beats everything. All right, listen to this in verse, verse 3. So he married Gomer. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not a very pretty name, Gomer. But he married Gomer, the daughter of Dibelain, and she conceived and bore him a son. Promiscuous woman. They got married. They had a son. In verse 6, we find that Gomer conceived and, and also had a daughter. And then in verse 8, we see that um, she had a son. So they had three kids, Hosea and the prophet Hosea. 
the preacher Hosea, the man of God Hosea, went out and married a known-to-be promiscuous woman and built a family with her. Well, you'd say, well, praise God. God changed her. He turned her around, and, you know, they became a good family, and and he changed her heart. No, it didn't happen that way. We look in chapter 3, verse 1, and this is after something has happened. And so let me read this to you, but this is after these terrible things happened to Hosea. The Lord said to me, he said, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man. See, Gomer, after having three kids, building a family, she walked out on on Hosea. She walked out on him. And she didn't just walk out, she just went to a pretty bad man, we'll find out, pretty awful person, and she had uh, an affair with him. Um says, go, she's loved by another man. She's an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And we're talking about kingdom principles here. <laughs> we're going to get to this one. But love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. See, Israel turned their back on God over and over and over. Decade after decade, century after century. God kept bringing back the Israelites back. Kept bringing them back. As if they were an adulterous wife, he kept loving them and bringing them, bringing them back. And so he said, Hosea, go back to your wife, get her, and uh, bring her back to you. Love her as I have loved the Israelites. And so in verse 2, so I, brought, I bought her. We're talking about buying things back. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a leth of, of uh, barley. By the way, this was about the price of half of a female servant. She had, she had sunk so low that they didn't even trade her for a full human being, just half. Why? Because the person that she was with was a pimp. And he would pimp her out, and she had to be bought back. That's what was going on here. All right? And that's what happens when we sin we pimp ourselves out away from God. That's, that's what happens. And God literally has to come and say, all right, you own her. I'm going to buy her back. I'm going to buy her back. And that's what Hosea did for his wife. And he told her, you are to live with me many days. <laughs> you must not be a prostitute because that's what she'd gone to. She'd gone beyond just, just an affair and she was just being a prostitute at this point. Prostitutes find themselves uh, under the control of a person, a man or a woman, and and being made money off of. You will not be in it. You will be not not be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same towards you. In other words, you're going to be faithful to me, but I want you to be. But I'm going to be faithful to you. So in this in this scripture, we see in the story we see the buying back. The buying back. Did did. Gomer asked to be bought back? No. It was sovereign. God said, Hosea, go buy her back. And he just did it. All right? This was not, Gomer didn't even look for redemption. God said, I'm going to redeem her. And he said that to Israel. Israel wasn't looking for God. God just went and, got, went and redeemed them of his own sovereignty. So when we feel like just going and doing whatever we feel like doing, it might not be drinking. It might not be addictions. It may, may not have anything to do with lust. We might just give wind to our gossip. 
I'm just going to go talk about somebody. Let me tell you what, God has to buy you back. You're becoming a slave to something that you shouldn't be a slave to. Whenever you just give wind, just give way to your negativity. I'm no good. I'm not going to amount to anything. I'm nothing. You know what? God has to buy you back. Don't give way to your sin. Don't give way to your natural tendencies. God will always buy you back, but it's not even worth it to continue to give way to your own tendencies. But Jesus paid the price to buy us back, not only for us, but for every single one of the 7 or 8 billion people that are alive today. He bought the whole lot of us. He bought the whole lot of us. How do I know this? In 1 John 2, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Praise God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that God was reconciling what? The world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He's committed to us a message of reconciliation. What does that mean? Whenever I go and look at that coworker that drives me crazy, that, that I might not like too much, God's already bought them. Praise God. I, I might look at a, a friend that's getting on my nerves and, and doesn't love the Lord. I look at him and say, God already bought them. They are, you know what, in reality, they already belong to God. It raises your faith level that God has bought everybody back. The vilest, most horrible person. God has already bought them back. And they're just right for the taking for the kingdom of heaven. All right? That's a kingdom principle. That should change our thought process. If, you know, we look at uh, the situation that some of us are going through here. All right, without mentioning any names. Let me tell you what, God's already bought them back. He's already bought them. Praise God. Think of your situation, your impossible situation. God's already bought that person back along with the situations, along with the poor intentions, the bad intentions. God has already bought. That's a kingdom principle that we need to bear in mind and and raises our faith. All right, so why the whole world? Why did he go and buy the whole field? Why didn't he just go and buy the treasure? All right? Because you, you know what? You are valued to God. This is a kingdom principle. We need to get this through our thick skulls. We're spiritually dense. And we believe that if we fail, that somehow God doesn't value us as much as he did before. Condemnation sets in. And we think we're less than we were before. And God say, no, I value you just as much right now as I ever did. You could go commit the the worst, most heinous crime. Or the worst, most heinous crime could be committed against you. And God would value you just as much. That's a kingdom principle that we need to bear in mind, take a hold of and say, "Uh uh-uh, enemy, I'm not putting up with these lies anymore. God values me. God treasures me. Look at this. In Matthew um, 13, uh, 44, the, the parable itself, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. What was the man so joyful about? He was joyful about the treasure. Now listen to this scripture right here. Hebrews 12.2. It says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was he so joyful for? Was he joyful to get back up into heaven and sit back on his throne? No. He was joyful because he was redeeming you and me. He was getting you and me the way that he wanted. He was so joyful that he could hang on the cross with all the shame of the world on his shoulders and be joyful because he got you. He got you back. He's holding you. His treasure, his highest possession is in his hand now, and that's the joy that he has. You know, you and me were deep down in that field, the treasure, you know, deep down there in the mud, in the dirt, in the shame, in the rejection. And God comes and digs us up and says, oh, joy, here they are right here. I love them. I treasure them. I want to keep them. I want to hold them close. I'll do anything for you. That's the way God is when he thinks about you. I think of my precious little babies here. They're not babies anymore. But man, you know what? When, I, when, when they'd wake up in the morning, they'd be, well, they wouldn't be awake. I'd, I'd look at them laying there in the bassinet or whatever, and I would just look at them, and a big old smile would come over my face. They might have a booger in their nose and slobber coming out their face. But you know what? It just made me happy. You know what? When you wake up in the morning, God looks at you and he just smiles because there you are, his treasure, his love. Everything is wrapped up in you and he just wants to love you, hold you, help you, bless you. All right? That's a kingdom principle that we need to grasp hold of and let it become something that's inside of us that we understand. You can be in the dirt and the muck and the mud overlooked by others you know what if you're in the dirt of the world you're overlooked by others but God doesn't overlook you (laughs) you might be saying hey I've been overlooked for a promotion for all these years I'm never going to move forward and God's saying "Uh -uh, no 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 promotion comes from God Amen. I've got plans for you. I don't care what the world's plans are for you you've been overlooked but I'm not overlooking you That's a kingdom principle that we need to live and embrace and believe in. Look at this in Isaiah 43, 4, just to put it in perspective. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you. Nations in exchange for your life. That's how much God treasures you. He would do anything to get you, to have you, to hold you, to keep you, and to bless you. He buys the whole world just so he can have you. He throws that net into the lake and catches all the fish just so he can catch you. (laughs) That's the God that we serve. That's the God that loves us, that blesses us. Let me ask you, though, how many times is he willing to go dig that same treasure up from that field? How many times if that treasure goes and climbs back in the hole and buries itself in the mud and the mess, messes of life, how many times is that man willing to go dig that same treasure back up? How many times would you think, well, you know what? He bought the world just one time, but he will dig you up 70 times 7. 
He will dig you up 70 times 7. If you're that valuable to him, he won't just do it once. He won't do it twice. He'll do it until you stand on your two feet and you're strong and confident in the Lord. Yeah, I'll tell you what, when, when my kids, well, Tara, she's the funniest one. She would, when she learned to walk, she learned to run at the same time. It was one direction as fast as she could until something blocked her. And she would get up on her feet, and she'd aim in one straight direction and end hitting a wall. She had bruises all over her face all the time. She was constantly running into things, and even to this day, she's kind of that way. But, but you know what? When she fell down, I would just pick her back up again. <laughs> aim her in the safest direction possible, wind her up, and let her go again. Do you think I wouldn't just pick her back? up I just say Tara get up come on for crying out loud no 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 I'd put her back on her feet again and let her go again and we did that until she started learning to turn corners and avoid obstacles you know what God does that with you he's gonna pick you back up you say God I failed for the 10th time 10th time we got a hundred to go what are you what are you complaining about I'm going to get you back up, and you're going to do it eventually. Hang in there. Don't get down on yourself. You're valuable to me. I treasure you. I'm here to help you. I'm going to get you back up again. That's the God that we serve. Why? He loves you. He loves you. And if it's going to take 70 years, he's in it with you for 70 years. He's not going to give up on you. It's amazing. I was praying for somebody in this church <laughs> that's here today. <laughs> I was praying for somebody this week, man. And I tell you what, I kept praying, God, just justify them. They don't feel justified in themselves, but they don't need to feel justified in themselves. I prayed, God, just justify them. Because that's what the gospel tells us. God just justifies us even when we don't deserve it. What is justification? means just as if you'd never done anything wrong in the sight of God. Makes you right with God. God justifies. You can pray that prayer for yourself. God, just justify me right now. I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything to deserve it, but praise God, justify me. He'll pick us up. He'll get us, get us going. Hosea did that with his wife. If Hosea can do it with his wife, bring her back and love her again, surely you can love yourself again. Surely you can be okay with yourself again. Praise God. You haven't hurt yourself as bad as Hosea's wife hurt him. <laughs> forgive yourself. If God's forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself as well. Think of how many times, I've already mentioned this, how many times God forgave Israel. It's a, it's a type Israel is a type of who we are. And if God forgave Israel that many times, surely he will forgive you as well. It's a kingdom principle. You've been justified in the sight of God. If, in fact, of course, you're a believer of God. If you, you know, I've got to make sure that we understand that. If you believe on the name of God, in fact, it says in John 1, 12, I believe, for all who received him 
and believed on his name, he gave the right to be children of God. That verse does not say, for all who were perfect and never did anything wrong, he gave the right to become children of God. No, no, no. He said, receive and believe, and I'll give you the right to be a child of God. Praise the Lord. That's a kingdom principle. He'll dig you up out of that field over and over again until you stay undug up. Here's, the, I think, the final principle. Yes, here we go. God's act of salvation is sovereign. I love that. God's act, his act of saving you is a sovereign act on his behalf, has nothing to do with your desire, your will, your acceptance, nothing. He saves because he wants to save. He rescues because he wants to rescue. He, he rescues because it's, you're valuable to him. Listen to these scriptures or listen to these thoughts. Did God consult you when he bought the world? No. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because it was his will and his intention. Did he consult uh, the pearl who was bought? No. He said, I'm buying this pearl. I'm choosing this pearl. I'm taking it with me. Did he consult the fish when he threw the net out to capture all of them? No, he didn't ask the fish. That was his sovereign decision, his sovereign will. In Romans 9.15 it says, I will have mercy, this is God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And praise God for that. He's not going to let you decide if he's going to have mercy. No, he's just going to have mercy on you. Period. End of story. I will have compassion on whoever I'll have compassion. That's my sovereign choice. I'm going to do it just because I want to do it. And so Paul goes on to write in Romans 9, 16, It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. It depends on God's mercy. Praise the Lord. Matthew 18, 12, it says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one who wandered off? Did the little hundredth sheep that fell off and is on a ledge down on a cliff say, uh, yes, you can come save me? No. The shepherd just went and saved the sheep. It was a sovereign act of God, a mighty, powerful act of God. If you look at Saul's conversion in Acts 9, and it's on your reading for this this week, I challenge you, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, read the Bible. Read these scriptures, all right? Uh, but one of these, in fact, it's uh, on Thursday. Read Acts 9 and read about this guy named Saul who is going after the church to kill people, to separate families, to persecute people. He's going up from Jerusalem. He's going north up to Damascus. And what happens? A light shines down from heaven. This I'm not making this up. This is Acts 9. A light shines down from heaven. A voice is heard by Saul. And it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what does Saul say? Who are you? <laughs> That's why it's so important for us to declare the name of Jesus. People know about God, but they don't know the name of God. And so Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting me. Now, go into Damascus and wait there. This was sovereign God. Did Saul say, I give you permission to try to save me right now? No, Saul was going against God. He was going against God, and the sovereign hand of God came down and said, 
I am rescuing you from yourself right now. And he takes him into Damascus. Saul is blinded. All right, he's blinded. Uh, a man named Ananias in Damascus it prays, and God gives him a vision and says, go, go pray for Saul. Ananias says, this guy was coming to take us to be prisoners back in Jerusalem. And God says, no, I tell you, go, go, go pray for him because I've chosen him to be a, a light to the, uh, to the Gentiles and to the Jews, and I want to show him how much he must suffer for me. So Ananias obediently gets up, finds where Saul is. Saul has been there three days without eating. He's been fasting. He's blind. Ananias says, Saul, I've come to pray for you. He prays for him. Something like scales fall off of Saul's eyes. He can see again. Saul gets up, eats. He's strengthened. He's baptized and immediately begins to preach the gospel. You can't tell me that God doesn't sovereignly save. You can't tell me. God sovereignly saves. Now, could Saul have eventually said, no, God, I don't accept your salvation, and walked away from God? Absolutely could have. But the act of God's salvation is sovereign. It's sovereign. Look at these verses. In John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. No one, you, not me, not that hundredth sheep that needs to be rescued, can come to God unless God the Father draws them. Now, can I tell you something? Well, let me, let me tell you what this word draw means in the Greek. It literally means to drag. It literally means to drag. No man can come to God unless God the Father picks him up by the cuff of his neck like this, and drags him over to Jesus and says, boom, here, I'm trying to save you right now. How many of you have had God deal with you in that way? That's salvation. That's a kingdom principle. We think we have more involvement in salvation than we actually do. God is a sovereign God. He values you. Therefore, he makes every attempt to save you. Every attempt until your last dying breath. I believe heaven, this is not biblical, I believe heaven will be full of people who gave their hearts to God at the last minute. I believe it. Why? Because God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And you know, you've seen how folks who are just, just about to pass away, they have that last moment of clarity, that last moment where they're coherent. I believe God gives that to us so that we can make one last choice for God. God's salvation is a sovereign decision on his part. He drags us. <laughs> says in John 21, 11, it's the same word here, just to kind of give a word picture of this dragging, this forcibly taking someone even against their own will, which is what the Greek word means. It says, so Simon Peter went on board and hauled a net, a net full of fish onto the shore. That word haul is the same word that Jesus said, if I be, well, he said, uh, if you can't come to me unless the Father drags me. You think those fish wanted to be hauled onto the shore? No, they were dragged against their own will. That's what God does. He says, I'm, for the hundredth and tenth time, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put you right here, <laughs> and I'm going to save you. 
I want to save you. Uh, here's another example of this word dragged being used, the same exact Greek word in Acts 16, 19. But when the, her owners discovered that her, um, their hope of profit was gone, there's, I won't give you the backstory on this, they, they caught hold of Peter and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the forum there. Dragged. It's a violent sometimes process of salvation where God shakes someone up and says, look at me, look at me, wake up, I want to save you. Then in John 6, it says, no one is able to come to me unless, well, this isn't amplified, let me read it again. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me attracts them and draws them and gives them the desire to come to me. You know what? Look at your life. Didn't God put a desire in you for God that didn't used to be there? And in Philippians 2, uh, I think it's 11 and 12 says, We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in us, both to will and to act according to his purpose. God gives you the desire for him. And I'll end with this scripture right here in John 12, 32. It says, And I, this is Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, on the cross, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to me. I will, and that same word is used. In other words, I'm going to go out and drag 8 billion people. I'm going to try to save them. I'm going to draw them to myself. And so when you're, when you're praying for people, our faith level should be shooting through the ceiling right now. When we pray for the salvation of those that we love, God's already bought them. God's dragging them to himself. I mean, he's, un, he's an unstoppable force. Our faith level should be through the ceiling if we keep in mind these kingdom principles that are biblical that we've just talked about today. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God. Lord, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. It's forcefully advancing, and forceful men and women are taking hold of it and entering in, not because of their force, but because they see the power of the kingdom. They see the power of the kingdom even within them. The king of kings lives in us. He's sovereign. He makes up his mind to show compassion to whomever he'll show compassion to. Whoever he wants to show mercy to, he'll show mercy to. His choosing is upon us, Lord God. Hallelujah. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people who are called to declare the glories of God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be aware of the King. We pray that we would participate in the kingdom of heaven. And I pray, Lord, that we would apply kingdom principles in our day-to-day -day lives, Lord. No longer living as victims, but Lord God, living as victors, oh God. Living as victors, winners, not losers. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we praise you, God, because you have picked me up. I can't speak for everybody, but I believe I probably do. You've picked me up thousands of times and set me back up on my feet and said, okay, let's try this again. <laughs> You've dug me out of the pit hundreds and thousands of times and said, okay, now I'm going to put your feet on solid ground. That's the sovereign God that we serve. 
Lord, you look at the world and you see us and you say, I see value. I see value. I, I, there's my treasure. There's my precious love. I've inscribed them on the palm of my hands. Uh, they're, they're on the tip of my tongues. You're, Lord, we're in your thoughts, Lord Jesus. Your thoughts towards us are pleasant thoughts. Lord, your boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Our cup overflows. Oh, Lord God, the blessings of God overtake us. Surely goodness and mercy will overtake us and follow us all the days of our lives. Lord, help us to begin to live as a kingdom Kingdom participants, Lord, members of the kingdom of heaven, we thank you, Jesus.